So, uh, Jen, you a virgin? That's mature. Well, because Dawson is a virgin, and two virgins really makes for a clumsy first encounter, don't you think? You were going to die. I just thought I'd help, you know. Cut to the chase. No, it's, it's okay, Dawson. Yes, I am a virgin, and how about you, Joey? Oh, Are you a virgin? Please. Years ago, trucker named Bubba. What is up with you? This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And let me just say, listener, yes, you, you have five-star podcast taste. Did you know that? By choosing to listen to Unladylike out of the millions of podcasts out there, you, friend, have chosen quality. And you don't just have to take it from me. I'm going to read an Apple podcast, five-star review at random. Steffi Dube says, amazing. Thank you. I cannot lie. Please don't. I am an unlady, and I'm okay with that. We need this podcast in the potosphere, unraveling truths, giving a voice, lending an ear to women and their stories. I love it! Exclamation point. An exclamation point. Thank you, Steffi Dube. Now, is it gauche to start an episode by shamelessly plugging for five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify? Yeah, it probably is extremely gauche, which is one of the reasons why I've never done it. But now I'm doing it. Because for one thing, it is the easiest way to show Unladylike some love and help would-be unladies find the podcast. Also, I am hoping... A glowing review will give me a little bit of a credibility boost, since this is, after all, an Ask Unladylike episode where I answer your questions that Google could never. So, Unladies, are you ready? I don't think you're ready for this. Telly? Before we get to this week's advice request, I wanted to share part of my conversation with Unladylike listener A, who inspired the episode Bad Nose, Good Nose. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it is fantastic. And also, this chat with A will still make plenty of sense. She and I got on Zoom about three minutes after A finished listening to the episode, and I was both excited and a little bit nervous to check in and learn more about how her nose became an alleged problem that needs fixing. I know that the listeners can't see me, but I feel like um, if you've ever seen Dirty Dancing and you're familiar with the actress Jennifer Grey, we have mm-hmm. a we have very similar facial features, and Jennifer Grey is a Jewish woman that had rhinoplasty done. And I remember when um, she had that surgery, like my dad was like, man, she looked so much better before. And I just thought, you know, it's like a lose-lose. There's no way for for us to win this battle. You describe nose jobs as 
like a silent secret rite of passage. Was there a first time it was brought up to you? Yeah, the time that my mom told me she thought I would look prettier with a nose job, which is a very sad, sad statement to reflect on. But I think I must have been in maybe 10th grade. And it was kind of just out of the blue. Like we were just sitting on the couch together, like drinking a cup of coffee. And she just turned to me and she was like, you know, if you ever want to have this surgery done, I'll pay for it. It would probably be covered by insurance. And I just think you would look a lot prettier. Like you're beautiful as you are, but you know, you might look prettier if you had a nose job done. And it really took me aback. And then, of course, I spent the next 15 minutes in the bathroom looking at my nose and thinking about, you know, what prompted that comment. And I feel like ever since then, and honestly, she probably doesn't even remember this conversation, um, it sort of spiraled into a lot of like self-reflection about my face and what expectations I, I might have or people have for me, I suppose. So has your mom had a nose job? Yeah, as I mentioned in my email, like almost every single woman in my family, save for one cousin, has had plastic surgery. And it's really funny because people tell me that my mom and I look um, very similar all the time, but we have very different noses because she has Hmm. had plastic surgery. And I remember really distinctly finding a photo of her before she had had the procedure done. And in that photo, we looked almost identical. Like she had exactly the same nose that I have now. And I remember bringing her the photo and she asked me to put it away and to not mention to my dad that, you know, that photo existed because even though I think she succumbed to family pressure, she still didn't get some sort of relief And I think it helped me see that there's shame on both sides of the aisle. And I'm sure that her prompting me to get surgery also has to do with some of her own reckoning, which the episode also helped me understand. So, Yeah, and I'm also just curious if if there were ever open conversations among women in your family about body talk in the way that we hear about like women and socializing and the ways we talk about our bodies when we're around each other. Yeah, this is something that my family does not talk about. I think the only time we've ever openly acknowledged somebody's plastic surgery was when one of my other cousins had a nose job done and there were just comments of like, oh, doesn't she look so much better? Like, oh, but her nose was really bad before. And yeah, those just did not sit well with me. And I feel like anytime I've tried to breach the subject, like when I almost had my nose pierced. And as I was walking out the door, my grandma, who was almost 90 at the time, nearly begged me not to because she said it would draw attention to my face. And did I really want to do that? And I told her that what she had said was hurtful. And, you know, it never really went farther than that. So it is kind of a bit of a taboo topic, uh, despite the fact that my family is very open about you know, other emotional things. So how do you feel? How do you feel about your nose? I think similar to other women with um, any sort of body insecurity, it goes through phases. There are times that I have resentment for my nose. And there are also times that I love my nose. And as I've aged, my perspective has changed. As I've grown, my focus has changed away from maybe how I look 
a little bit more. I can say right now, I do like my nose. I just don't like um, the pressure that comes with having a large nose. Are there pressures outside of the family pressures that come with having a big nose? I think it's really more of like an internal and a family conflict. No stranger has ever (laughs) suggested that I adjust my face, which I suppose I'm grateful for. But yeah, it's really more of like a swept under the rug, made in sort of passive aggressive passing comments kind of pressure. Is it a conversation at all that you would want to engage in with your family of like, hey, drop it, like, accept, accept my nose? Yeah, I think that it's probably a conversation that would be healthy to have. It might come into play as well, like as I think about having kids and the connotations with them. And I think it would be important and valuable for me to talk to my family. I just haven't really had the courage. And even as I reflected on the episode that you did, I was like, wow, I've listened to, I think, every single episode you've ever put out. And I've listened to people's, you know, insecurities and really, you know, emotional, personal things. But it hits differently when it's your thing. And it kind of made me reflect on, okay, well, if you know, potentially like thousands of people can listen to this. And like, certainly I can talk to my mom, like she's one of my best friends. So hopefully this is the kick in the butt that I need to actually talk to her about it. I mean, is there a way that you can just kind of get her to listen to this episode? Yeah. (laughs) Slide it into her, slide it in her DMs, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thought of you. uh... Thank you and Godspeed to Unlady A, which uh, sounds way too much like the band formerly known as Lady Antebellum. Anyway, speaking of broaching uncomfortable conversations, it is now time for a segment I'm calling Tell Unladylike. Since the advice episodes are called Ask Unladylike, this is Tell Unladylike, where y'all tell me where I can go shove it. Just kidding. Y'all are amazing. (laughs) So amazing, in fact, that last Ask Unladylike, unvaxxed, unfriended, I was fully bracing myself when that episode came out. And fortunately, y'all had a lot to say. And even though not everyone was pleased with what I had to say, unladies, you know how to do constructive criticism. And that's just one of the many things I love about y'all. And if you are new to this podcast, I call listeners unladies and welcome. You are included in this. Let's dive in. And let's start with the question that by far (laughs) got the most feedback. And it was Kelly in Colorado looking for advice on mending things with a long-distance friend who is unvaccinated, who things are on the rocks between them now because this friend was coming into town, originally going to stay at Kelly's house. Then Kelly discovers 
The friend is unvaccinated. Kelly also has a little baby now. And Kelly had to tell that friend, sorry, you got to stay somewhere else. And let's just say the whole thing really put the distance in their long-distance friendship. Listener Lexi said, I'm listening to your ep about the girl who kicked her friend out of her house for being unvaxxed. I was in a similar situation in August 2021. I went to visit my hometown friends and family with my 18-month-old, who no one had met yet, and I knew a dear, dear friend of mine was not vaccinated. At the time, I was captain scared of COVID, and in the years since, I've had it as has my kid and partner, and we were all fine, and that had certainly lessened the intense fear I felt in the early days of the pandemic. Anyway, after much hand-wringing on my part, we agreed to hang out outside, and for a long time, I harbored resentment that she was selfish and angry and that she didn't trust the science. But as time went on and as I got less scared and practiced some cognitive dissonance, I've just come to terms with her decision to do what she likes with her body. We're still friends, thankfully. Wow. Lexi, that was a journey. And the only thing that bumped for me, and Lexi, I'm sure this was not intentional, but my body and my choice kind of rhetoric being applied to not getting vaccinated. I'm not into that kind of co-opting. That kind of co-opting of feminist rhetoric over reproductive rights and access because of anti-science, anti-abortion then being flipped into some kind of anti-vax slogan, which is also (sighs) anti-science. And again, Lexi, I am fully reading all of this out of context in your letter. So please, don't take that feedback personally. Now, Michelle kind of picks up the baton from Lexi and says, I was listening to the recent episode of Ask Unladylike and was cringing about the first email on vaccination status. I'm bothered because there's still so much misunderstanding about what the vaccine does for you and for others. Well, you could say that again, especially when it comes to anti-vaxxers. Michelle says, being vaccinated is for, all caps, you. You can still get COVID even if you're vaccinated. I did. You can still carry COVID even if you're vaccinated and not sick. What the vaccine does is help you to not get sick, not get as sick, and to survive if you do get sick. Losing a friend over that, 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 that seems wrong. The friend is risking her own health and survival. I just cringe that people seem to think that the vaccine makes you invulnerable. It makes people more careless. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Interesting take, Michelle. Okay, and finally, I'm going to share a letter from Sarah. There are going to be a number of Sarahs this episode. But a letter from Sarah that also calls back to our women and conspiracy theories two-parter, Illuminati Influencer Queens Part 1 and 2. If you haven't listened to it, do. I also read this on a bonus mailbag episode on Patreon. So, dearest patrons, you can fast forward the next 
three minutes. But I had to share it here because I have a feeling it's going to resonate with a lot of y'all. Sarah writes, I am a person who ended a friendship over the vaccine. I have a friend group from childhood of eight women and am closer to some than others. One, who we'll call Rachel, lives out of state, so I rarely see her anyway, and has become more and more indoctrinated with QAnon-adjacent beliefs over time. The vaccine was the final straw. I had reached out privately over a few of her social media posts, anti-BLM, anti-choice, etc., to try to get a better understanding and explain my position, one that she clearly had misinformation about. But it was getting harder and harder to feel like I wanted a person with such different, all caps, VALUES <laughs> in my life. Then, the vaccine cometh. I'm immunocompromised, so it's especially important for me that society reach herd immunity to keep people like me safe, and even more important for me to surround myself with people who believe that I deserve that safety. We were all in the group chat talking about when we were getting vaxxed, which ones we ended up with, etc. Then Rachel comes in hot with very QAnon takes about how unsafe it is, how for her, the six people who died in trials was enough and we don't need more people to die, parentheses, like from COVID, question mark, exclamation point, question mark, and I was, all caps, DONE! We actually have a separate group chat for the five of the eight of us who live in the same state so the others don't have to deal with a million texts about logistics of meetups. So I just use that one and not the one she's in. I felt like I'd already tried to talk to her about the issues I have with her positions, and she no longer deserves that emotional labor from me. She is well aware of my medical conditions, and in fact, her father is a doctor. The members of the group I'm closer to know my position and support it. And certainly, if they want to see her when she's in town, that's up to them. So while the vaccine was the final straw, it wasn't the only thing. And I suspect that may be the case with others as well, given the current political atmosphere. Oh, I bet. I bet. Now, if you'd like to hear the most heated response to that advice request from a frustrated listener who felt the need to explain to me how making safety decisions on behalf of an infant, quote, is not the same thing as making decisions between adults, end quote. To hear that, you got to go to the Patreon. Yeah, that's paywalled content. Sometimes I just got to, I got to paywall my responses, friends. You know? I also heard from some unladies in STEM who had advice for listener Lydia. She was the one who was about to graduate from college with a computer science degree, always the only woman in the room, and she wanted to know how to enter this field that is rife with sexism with any kind of confidence. Listener Jenny recommended, I am a woman in computer science. Oh, hey. And have been for over 20 years. Oh, hey. I just went to the Grace Hopper celebration along with 15,000 fellow women, non-binary, and ally technologists. It was so inspiring. 
It's run yearly by anitab.org, and I would highly recommend Lydia join and utilize all the benefits they offer, including mentor-mentee relationships. Ah, Jenny! 20-year computer science veteran, thank you for that hot tip. Over in the Instagram DMs, at Unladylike Media, Megan shared, I am currently a scientist in the muscle physiology slash exercise science world. Oh my God, that's so cool. As you may expect, if it's muscle, it can be very dude heavy. Some great, a few select trash humans. I think confidence is earned slash developed through challenges and doesn't manifest itself. Agree. This is not to say go make things difficult on oneself just to make a point, but rather take confidence in the challenges you've already overcome. I've taught for many years, and computer science is really hard. I have a PhD and am pretty fluent in code-based statistical, and I don't know the first thing about computers. And y'all, I don't know the first thing about what code-based statistical is. I think when you are surrounded by a lot of the same people in your field, your accomplishments can feel less impressive. But give yourself a cheer. You're in one of the most difficult majors on any college campus. Hell yes. That's such a good point, too. When you are surrounded by a lot of the same people in your field, your accomplishments can feel less impressive. Yeah, that's like me anytime I go on Twitter. Any single time. There are so many companies that need your kind of talent. People don't pursue computer science slash math because they're hard. And because it's so hard, companies are desperate to find computer science people. So upon entering the job market, you should have your pick of companies. If one has a crappy man-child manager, move on to a company that will appreciate and cultivate your talent and skill. They are out there. And many now are women-led and ready to hire young female talent. You've got this. Now, I do have some real talk from another listener named Sarah. And Sarah wrote, I'm a little over five years into my career in chemical engineering, and to be honest, I don't know if I have advice. I feel like I have had a huge struggle with people taking me seriously. I have thankfully been promoted a few times, but I'm feeling very defeated in my current role due to major sexism red flags. (sighs) Get ready, y'all. I've been called. A fucking buzzkill. Too pretty to be taken seriously. Little girl. I've been asked if I'm my boss's assistant. If I'm only going to be eating salad at all meals. I get asked to organize all the outside work activities, even if it's just going to the bar. A few weeks ago, someone told me they were impressed to hear technical words coming out of my mouth because I was too pretty. I am so frustrated. Um, yeah, I, if, if someone asked me whether I would only be eating salad, I would take my salad fork and I was about to say poke their eye out. That is much too grisly. I would actually just use it to passive aggressively eat my salad because I probably wouldn't think of anything in the moment to say. Okay, back to Sarah. I have been feeling very overwhelmed with everything and the only advice I have is going to a technical group like Women in Comp Sci, SWE, or something like that, so you have peers that are going through the same thing as you. There are less women working here now than there were five years ago, which is a bummer. 
There are only two other women at my company in the engineering and technical roles out of 60-plus guys. <sighs> Thankfully, we're all pretty similar and have each other to talk to, which is the only thing that keeps me together some days. I also think my company and industry is really old-fashioned, so I'd encourage anyone getting into STEM to choose a company that is making a product or service you personally or politically align with. I make petrochemicals and don't agree with the company's mission or purpose, so I'm actively looking for a new job that fits my beliefs better. I think companies that have a more progressive mission are more likely to have a better culture, but I could be wrong. I'm hoping for a better experience for everyone else. Sarah, I am so enraged for you and thankful that you took the time to share the unvarnished truth. I am also, I'm also thrilled to hear you're looking for a new job, you know, because you took the words right out of my mouth. Three women, 60 plus men. Oof. Ooh, the lolly. Finally, I've got some quick feedback to my response to Leticia's advice request on whether she should stop dyeing away her gray. Cheryl wrote, I was just listening to the October Q&A episode and think you might be misinterpreting your dad's reaction to your graying hair. Cheryl is talking to me. In case you didn't listen, you know what? I'm not going to give you the recap. You got to go back and listen to the episode. I tell a whole story about my dad. So what does Cheryl have to say about my dad? It might be more about how difficult it is for him to realize you are aging and what it means for his own mortality. I just lost my dad very suddenly a few months ago, so I may be biased to giving dads a little grace. Oh, Cheryl. I'm so sorry, Cheryl. And you're a thousand percent right. As his youngest child, I can only imagine (laughs) what a mortality check it must be for him to see her graying hair. And thank you, Cheryl, for reminding me to appreciate that time nonetheless. Okay. Let's take a quick break. Got a question that you don't know how to answer. Email me. (laughs) Okay, young ladies. This episode's advice request comes from Lee. Subject line. On the verge. In. She spelled it V-E-R-G parentheses I-N. Lee, I love it. I love a pun. Lee writes. At age 27. I had made my peace with not having a relationship yet, for the most part. I was either too busy with school, new jobs, or just too chicken to initiate on a crush from afar. Fast forward, to my surprise last year, I found myself being asked out by a real catch of a guy I had just met at a coffee shop, go figure. He's younger, 21, still in college, and has had at least one previous relationship. 
My conundrum is this. Now that we're three months into dating, I find myself wondering if I need to tell him just how new to all this I am. The subject hasn't really presented itself naturally yet, and now I'm a little self-conscious that I'm stumbling through first kisses, cuddling, and the possibility of sex in the near future. Does he sense my awkward navigation through these? I'm on board to be more intimate, but I don't really know what I'm doing. How do I bring this up? Do I even need to until he's curious? So far, he's been genuinely attentive and thoughtful, especially compared to a lot of the guys in our local college town dating scene. I know he'd be very understanding. I just can't, for the life of me, decide when or if I ought to announce my inexperience. What's the feminist angle on it all, you know? Oh, I know, Lee. I know. I know, yes, the feminist angle. And I also know the head games that virginity, in air quotes, can play on us. After all, virginity is a patriarchal invention, a heteronormative construct that frames cisgender women as the sexual gatekeepers and our worth as relationship partners and sexual partners, frankly, allegedly hinges on whether or not A penis has penetrated a vagina. How ridiculous is that? How ridiculous is that? Answer, extremely ridiculous. And Lee, I'm pretty sure you understand that you don't owe him any kind of explanation. What I pick up from your letter and probably projecting my own experience onto this is the anxiety that this guy is sensing your inexperience, that he might be thinking to himself, "Uh uh-oh, I think she might be a virgin. She doesn't really seem to know what she's doing. And to that, I will say he's probably thinking about it much less than you are. At 21, even though he's had at least one previous relationship, that means fuck all, honestly. I also highly doubt that any 21-year-old college guy is going to be so overwhelmingly experienced that he just he just he just can't handle you fumbling around with all of this. Like no, I have a feeling this guy is thrilled. He met you in a coffee shop. Y'all y'all didn't even meet on Tinder. This is like old school. He saw you, was attracted to you, asked you out. Like, you're in, you know? But again, the thing about virginity, of course, are are the head games. Because we're talking about something that is highly subjective and cultural and has been warped by centuries of Christian indoctrination and purity culture. And that kind of stuff is really hard to simply talk ourselves out of. I also want to go back to Lee's central conundrum. She says, I'm a little self-conscious that I'm stumbling through first kisses, cuddling, the possibility of sex in the near future. Does he sense my awkward navigation? How do I bring this up? Do I even need to until he's curious? Lee, these are all great questions to be asking. My 
feminist lens on it, though, is to shift the angle of these questions away from him so much and onto you. Because what I'm hearing a lot of is you relying on him to set the pace of things. And what would happen, Lee, if you took him out of the equation for a hot second and asked yourself, what do you want? Like, do you want to have sex with this guy? Because if the answer is yes, I think the way you bring that up is to say to him, honestly, at any point in time, when you are on your way out the door, when you are sitting next to him, half watching Love is Blind, like whatever it is to where y'all aren't already mid-makeout, simply ask him, do you want to have sex? Because I would like to. And depending on his response to that, since I also want to leave room for this guy to say no, depending on his response and how you're feeling in that moment, maybe you then express that you feel a little nervous about it. It's the first time. It will be the first time that he will be having sex with you as well. So if you want to steer clear of getting into the virginity of it all, you can simply say, I mean, I'm a little nervous because it's going to be the first time. And you get to decide (laughs) which kind of first time you're alluding to. I also want to be clear that I'm not arguing for deception or game-playing. I just think that unless this is a relationship that you really want to invest a lot of emotional energy into and are getting that in return, importantly, you don't have to share things that you're not comfortable with. There's also room in there for some playfulness. Going back to my example of y'all watching season three of Love is Blind, which, no, I'm not watching it, y'all. I've seen season one and two, and I don't know if I have more of my life to give away right now. (laughs) But let's say that y'all are watching it, and one of the couples starts getting hot and heavy. You can also uh, turn to him and say, hey, that looks fun. Whatever takes some of the pressure that you're feeling off of you, because the, the stakes, I'm sure, feel precarious because you're having fun and you want to keep having fun and maybe yeah have some sex while you're at it challenge yourself lee to ask for what it is that you want out of this anyone regardless of their age who freaks out or withdraws at the notion of being intimate with someone who has not had penis and vagina sexual intercourse, but is enthusiastically consenting to it? Yeah, no. That's on them. That is their baggage. And it sucks. It is a form of rejection, yes. Does it feel personal? Sure. But ultimately, it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with centuries of this virginal indoctrination that even in our highly sexualized culture is still going strong. 
So let's dig in a little deeper, starting with the term virgin. It originated from the Latin word virgo, meaning maiden, and it entered the English language in the 1200s. And by 1390, apparently, ye olde horn dogs <laughs> were already talking about virginity in terms of keeping it or losing it. And on top of that, the term virgin only applied to women originally. And as we'll find out, the gendering of virginity is still going strong. But honestly, it it, it fucks with all of us. And I found a 2021 study that sheds some more light on that. It's called Coming Out as a Virgin or Not, the Disclosure of Virginity Status Scale. Now, this study intentionally looked only at cishet young adults and teens precisely because of the heteronormative nature of virginity. And the study authors noted that there's still a lot of research that needs to be done on first sexual experiences and virginity disclosure among LGBTQ people. But within that cishet construct of virginity, the study authors highlight three cognitive frameworks of how people tend to perceive the idea of virginity. It's either a gift, a stigma, or a process. So virginity as a gift, this is purity culture. And for women who perceive virginity as a gift, they tend to be more open about their virginal status because, of course, according to patriarchy, virgins are celebrated, right? On the flip side of that, of course, there's a lot of shame associated with sexual experience. Then there's virginity seen as stigma, as something that you do not want to be. You feel shame for being inexperienced, but on the flip side of that, you're potentially loud and proud once you're doing it, whatever the it is for you. So for me growing up, I was raised with virginity as gift, but by the time I was graduating high school, I was full-blown virginity as stigma. And the way that I negotiated that for myself in my 18-year-old brain was, I'm way too horny to wait for marriage. That seems ridiculous. But this is also supposed to be a big deal. I mean, where were you when Joey and Pacey had sex for the first time on Dawson's Creek, okay? I was in my parents' bedroom sneaking that episode because I wasn't supposed to watch Dawson's Creek. And then the next day at high school, everybody was talking about it. And I remember it being kind of, uh, watching it being, and I also remember, and I also remember watching it being like, this is kind of boring, you know? I'm sure they did like a fade to black kind of thing, but it was this, oh, it was such a big deal, such a big deal. And of course, Pacey was not a virgin because in the very first episode of Dawson's Creek, who was he having sex with in the classroom? Yeah, the teacher, the teacher. There was a lot of shit going on in Dawson's Creek. Okay. In retrospect, the biggest difference between 
the purity culture messages I was raised with and the pop cultural messages (laughs) I was sneaking in in the late 90s, early aughts was marriage as the line. So according to church, I needed to be a virgin when I got married. According to pop culture, I didn't need to be a virgin when I got married. In fact, that might be weird, but it was still framed as a gift that you give to a man that you love. Like, love became the metric. And honestly, (laughs) making love the line of when first sexual intercourse is acceptable, it really didn't do me any favors either because what I did was convince myself at 18 that the older guy that I was dating who was in his early 20s, who I really just hung out and watched him play Halo and smoke weed and get drunk on the weekends, I convinced myself that I must love him because what I wanted from him was to put his penis inside of my vagina so I could no longer be a virgin. Also, partly due to a friend of his, also an older guy, telling me that I would likely get dumped because I'm a virgin, and that was too much of a burden for any guy to take on of of being someone's first. And, you know, hearing myself describe all this stuff out loud, I'm shocked that I even made it here. (laughs) Back to our study, though. There's the gift framework, the stigma framework, and then there's the process framework. And The process framework is kind of virginity neutral. It's more the approach of, yeah, at some point, this thing called sex will happen, and before it, I will have been allegedly a virgin, and afterwards, I allegedly will no longer be one, and it's just part of the process of maturation. And I really, really wish I could have been more of a process thinker. But the stigma and concern of virginity is so real. The study noted that previous research found that both non-virgins and virgins say that they prefer a partner who has at least some sexual experience. And when it comes to self-disclosures, virginity status, quote, was consistently rated as the most uncomfortable disclosure across gender and sexual orientation. So regardless of whether you see it as a gift or a process or a stigma, everybody's out here with some very warped ideas about virgins. And of course, gender differences and sexual double standards quickly emerge. So the study found that among cisgender men, they were more likely to view virginity as a stigma. Cisgender women, meanwhile, are likelier to see virginity as a gift. And I think it's worth noting women tend to have broader definitions of what constitutes, quote-unquote, having sex. 
And in opposite gender dating scenarios as well, women tend to disclose virginity status more often than men. But what the study really highlights, aside from the gender differences, is how virginity disclosure depends a lot on the disclosee. (laughs) The researchers looked at virginity disclosure to peers, to family, and to religious figures. So sexually active women disclosed the most of their friends, while sexually inactive or virgin men disclosed the least to their friends. See? It fucks everybody. It fucks everybody. When it comes to disclosing to family, female virgins disclosed the most, while male virgins, again, disclosed the least. Male virgins are really keeping it close to the vest. Close to the chest? Close to the vest? (laughs) Why would it be a vest? Is it the chest? Oh, God, I don't know. And that definitely resonated with my purity and chastity culture upbringing, which is all about female virgins. You're wearing a promise ring. You're doing a daddy-daughter dance. You are openly, like it is, it is part of your public-facing identity and something that your parents are actively interested in you at least maintaining the appearance of a virgin. The script flips, however, in disclosures to religious figures. So again, female virgins disclosing the most, whereas sexually active women disclosed the least and lied the most to religious figures. And that kind of shape-shifting of virginity disclosures sums up so much of why the whole thing is honestly more trouble than it's worth. To quote the study authors, female public declarations of abstinence are celebrated due to sexual suppression of women, but with peers, virginity loss is expected. Meanwhile, the opposite is true for men, particularly young men who are expected to be sexual initiators regardless of context. And that right there is why it fucks all of us. It writes the script for cisgender young men saying, hey, guess what? You are going to need to initiate this stuff. And if you are not hot and horny and getting it in, then you're going to be some kind of weirdo. I would love to know, though, from listeners, have our broadening understandings of gender and sexuality steeped into virginity culture at all? Like, Does Gen Z, for instance, give as much of a fuck about virginity status as millennials did? And I would also love to hear from any other unladies navigating the confounding construct that is virginity. Whatever age it might be, it is one of those many, many things that is straightforward kind of to understand and to get from a feminist perspective of like, I know that it is made up and yet, and yet I care about it. I worry about it. People are weird about it. That's very real and very valid. And I don't think we talk enough about virginity outside of high school and even college age. And as much as I love Steve Carell, 
I think it's unfortunate that the 40-year-old virgin stereotype and stigma, it hasn't budged enough, let's say. It also made me wonder whether disclosing virginity status or number of partners are essentially two sides of the same slut-shaming coin. Because if you disclose that you're a virgin, you're a prude. If you disclose that you have had one-night stands and or more than, like, four sexual partners, you're a sloop. And that's unladylike for slut. Keep the advice and questions coming, unladies. And thank you to everyone who has sent theirs in. You can send voice memos and emails to hello at unladylike.co or DM them on Instagram at unladylikemedia. You can also follow Unladylike Media on TikTok and Twitter, where I will not be paying a billionaire for a goddamn blue check. Suck it, Elon. For weekly bonus episodes, full-length guest interviews, and more mailbag fun, join the Patreon for $5 a month. Just $5. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Unladylike is a Starburns audio production written and executive produced by me, Kristen Conger. Tara Brockwell is our senior producer. Catherine Caligori is our associate producer. Engineering and post-production is by Ali Naku. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. Starbanks Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.